Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. The first time I went to see my primary care doctor, I had one eye on performance still, even though, you know, I had terrible insomnia, these horrible gut symptoms. I was still thinking, I bet this doctor guy, I bet if he can fix this stuff, it can improve my sports performance. You know, that's what I wasn't thinking. Oh, it would just make me a healthier, better human, more fun to be around. I was just, it was all about sports performance. And uh, yeah, I, I, I see that. I see the folly of that now, right? Now I'm old and, you know, 45. I'm not really racing at the highest level anymore. I still have a pro license, but, you know, come on, I'm not doing 20, 30 hours a week of training anymore. So I'm never going to be that competitive. But, yeah, it was that pursuit of performance that got me into trouble. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Doing creative work can be kind of lonely, and that's why we built the Unmistakable Listener Tribe. The tribe is a community for professionals to connect and support each other. Everything is designed to help you grow your business and share what's working and what isn't. And that's true whether you're a business owner or an artist. You'll get access to feedback, live conversations with guests, and so much more. By joining the tribe, you become part of a community of creators who all support each other, and it's completely free. Hopefully, I'll see you there. Visit unmistakablecreative.com slash tribe to join. Again, that's unmistakablecreative.com slash tribe. Chris, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Well, thank you for having me and uh, allowing me to bring down the house prices. I really appreciate it. <laughs> well, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I uh, was referred to you by way of our mutual friend and uh, former Unmistakable Creative guest, Nick Notice, who I think the world of. And, uh, you know, he told me a little bit about what you did. And I thought, yeah, this is fascinating. But before we get into your work, um, I want to start by asking you, where in the world did you grow up? And what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made throughout your life and your career? Oh, you know, one thing I noticed from listening to your podcast is you really ask good questions. And the, <laughs> the reason I know that is because you hear the guests say, oh, you ask good questions. <laughs> um, yeah, so to answer your question, I'm British. I'm currently living in Santa Cruz in California. I grew up in a rather boring town called Newbury in Berkshire. And if anyone's listening from there, they'll probably send me hate mail now, but it's true. It's kind of boring. And uh, I went to university in Southampton, which is on the South Coast. And then I moved to London, which is where everyone seemed to end up. So I was kind of reunited with some of my old school friends there. And we had a great time. And I worked for some 
interesting companies. I worked for a telco startup there, had a really good time, and then eventually ended up working for Yahoo, uh, who mm-hmm. you'll probably remember. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not, not, not as popular <laughs> as they once used to be, right? Um, and oh, they yeah. were very kind. They brought me, they gave me the opportunity to move over to California. And so I worked in uh, Sunnyvale in California in Silicon Valley uh, for a few yeah. years, lived in San Francisco. So yeah, I mean, that opportunity to go to London and get the opportunity from Yahoo was just amazing. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you look at the sort of contrast in terms of social values, in terms of just lifestyle uh, and all of that versus the, you know, your time in the US versus UK, like what have you noticed is the difference and, you know, what uh, do you think that your upbringing from being abroad has had on the way that your life has turned out here? I notice that America is very much more polarized. Have you, do you does that resonate with you? Do you notice that? Yeah, um, that seems to be the case. I mean, especially in the last few years, I think I, you know, it didn't seem as much, but I feel like in the last probably four years after the Trump presidency, much more so. Um, although Ezra Klein wrote this book about this called Polarized. And he said that basically this has been going on for a very long time. It's just I see. been much more amplified recently. Oh, you really notice it. So not just the politics. I think in the UK, mm. everything's very much more centrist. You know, there's three yeah. parties, but they're all kind of in the center. There's not much to choose between them. Yeah. But then also in like, the people that I met, I met some of the smartest people I have ever met. You know, I worked in finance for a while, quantitative finance. You'd meet all these mm. mathematicians. Some of you had PhDs from Princeton. Uh, I mean, holy cow, they're just so smart. And and then also met some people that seemed a lot less smart, um, not wishing to be too unkind. Whereas in the UK, everyone's kind of in the middle again, you know, like I, I'm sure there are some people as smart as the ones I've met, but I've not met them yet, you know, so I feel like everything's a lot more polarized. Mm. Yeah, you know, I mean, I get the sense you were not, you said, you know, we're not just talking in terms of politics, but you you mentioned finance, which is like a breeding ground for ambitious, you know, highly mm. motivated, super smart people. Uh, what have you noticed about the sort of narrative around sort of drive, ambition and success, you know, here versus the one you grew up with, particularly because you have this contrast of London and Silicon mm. Valley, which is yet another place where, you know, uh, relentless ambition is, uh, you know, not only encouraged, but rewarded, even mm. when it's pushed to the point of diminishing returns, as we've seen, you know, in the last few years with things like, you know, uh, Theranos and, you know, WeWork and all these stories. Oh, that's a really good point you raise again. Yeah, I think in the UK, you know, a job is something you do, and it's not really that important in your life, I would say. It's not as important. And often it's just about a nice place to go to meet your friends during the day. You know, I, like all my friends from the UK have been working from home for the last year, like everyone else, at least all the knowledge workers. And they're desperate to go back because that's their social life. You know, they want to see all their friends. <laughs> Whereas yeah. in, in the US, I feel like that's kind of different. Like I don't know as many people who are as keen to go back. And I think <laughs> you're right. I think there is uh, more of a culture of relentless pursuit of stuff, right? You might call it the hedonic treadmill. And I actually interviewed an author of a book, Brad Stolberg. He has a book called The Passion Paradox. So this is a a book. Yeah, you've you've read that book. Yeah, so I interviewed Brad for my podcast and uh, he talked about this. He talks about Theranos specifically and Lance Armstrong, you know, the cyclist. It's this this kind of relentless pursuit um, leads to burnout and cheating. Um, so yeah, again, another, another interesting that you've picked up on that, that cultural difference between the US and the UK. 
Yeah. What 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 do you impact do you think that that has on the overall quality of life and, and sense of fulfillment and satisfaction that people have in their lives? Um, when you contrast the two, do you think that people in the UK are happier because they live that way? Uh, do you think the people in the US are less happy because they're so driven? Yeah, I, I think this is ancient wisdom, isn't it? Isn't it? Wasn't it the Buddha that said that craving is the source of all suffering? You know, I think that in the US, people crave change and, you know, the next thing much more than in the UK. So I think probably people in the UK are more satisfied with the life. They're just more chilled and contented with what they've already got. Well, but clearly on some level you weren't. I mean, I don't think you do what you do, you know, ending up, you know, in the UK working in finance, working yeah. at Yahoo. And I know you're also a professional mountain biker, which, by the way, how do those two things coexist? Yeah, I thought right. that was like a fairly time-consuming occupation to be a pro mountain biker. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's another great observation. Yeah, I became a, a kind of junkie for those ecstatic peak states that come from... I mean, you know, surfing, I kind of yeah. know surfing. I can't surf by kiteboard and it's kind of the same. You know, I live here in Santa Cruz and mm-hmm. we get some great waves and the wind is also really good. So, you know, sometimes I get down there and I'm, I've got my kite. So I'm cheating rather than paddling out onto the waves. I'm using a kite to pull me onto the waves. You know, it's like doping and surfing, right? Hey, on uh, my list of things to do, by the way, so you may have to teach me because I, I learned that, you know, on a kite, you can do all this stuff that you can't do on a surfboard without the skills you need, like launching airs. Oh, I mean, it's it's insane. You know, I've heard you talk about how waves don't come, you know, completely periodically. They they come in sets, right? Like yeah. it's not not the same rhythm all the time. And uh, you know, you see a set come in, and you, you've got a kite. You can get every single wave, right? Like you could get all of them. <laughs> <laughs> That's the advantage. Yeah, uh, yeah mm. and I do think it's easy because you've got something pulling you up. You see, like you can't really get pummeled in quite the same way as you can when you're surfing because there's there's something yeah. pulling you up all the time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I think, I mean, it was that, the love of those extreme sports, if you will, that persuaded me it was a good idea to move from London to California. It's really, living in London, central London is really frustrating. You know, come the weekend, it can take two hours just to get out of the city to anything remotely resembling nature. And I really wasn't into that. I was commuting from London to Wales to ride my mountain bike every weekend. And like, this is stupid, you know, whereas... In California, I mean, where I am now in Santa Cruz, like there's trails everywhere. I can just like ride straight from my house. It's fantastic. Mm. So that was, it's kind of the pursuit of those peak states, you know, dropping into a wave or riding the perfect trail. That was kind of what persuaded me to move to California. Yeah. Well, so what what uh, was the sort of seed that sparked your interest in, in extreme sports? Because for me, it was just a, a random day on the beach in Brazil where I stood up for the first time on a surfboard and I thought, holy shit, like it was a religious experience. Um, and people who have described Mount Hill, downhill mountain biking to me, I remember Stephen Kotler describing this to me once. He said, you know, the first time you go down, you're like, holy shit, that was terrifying. The second time you're like, all right, that wasn't so bad. By the third time you go down, he says, damn, these bikes are really expensive. I need to figure out how to buy one. Like he says, it's that quick in terms <laughs> of the, the flow that it creates but what i mean what sparked your interest in this like and how did you get into it yeah that's exactly right i just interviewed jamie wheel who is the co-author yeah. with stephen kotler on steve stealing fire jamie's got a new book recaptured the rapture you probably enjoy as well and you know my my journey into mountain biking is exactly what you just said right i've got you know some finnish friend who sadly is uh, no longer alive uh took me uh, mountain biking I mean, I'd done it as a kid, I sort of knew. I just wasn't ready to experience it when I was 13 or 14. And so it was only as a 
in my early 20s when this guy took me out and I experienced exactly what you just said. And actually, he was the same guy that introduced me to snowboarding as well. He's like, oh, you must come with me to Austria and, you know, we'll bring my Austrian buddy and he knows all the local whatever. I mean, yeah, within 15 minutes, I'm completely hooked on it. It's just so easy to get into. Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy-to-use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business, all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot com slash podcast. AWeber, simpler email marketing. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Yeah. Were you uh, a naturally athletic person? Because like I, you know, I'm sure you've heard me mention this before if you've heard a few episodes where like I have no natural athletic ability. Yeah. And the funny thing is that like to me, when I think about extreme sports and what draws me to them is like the exercise is a fringe benefit. Like that is not at all why I do any of those things. Like mm. nobody, and you talk to any of them, but I, I think it takes a certain personality type. I feel like, you know, the people who tend to uh, be drawn towards extreme sports are the people who suck at team sports. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I was terrible on my basketball team. It was the most improved player, which just means you're the shittiest player on the team. Uh, and I loved the fact that in an extreme sport like snowboarding or surfing, like if your performance sucks, nobody else's suffers as a result. Mm. Yeah, I but think that's exactly what is it, right. 
personality-wise that drew you? And, and what do you think it is that draws people to this? I mean, obviously, the flow is a big thing. I know that. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Yeah, so I played football. You call it soccer over here in the U.S., at school and rugby because I was forced to and it sucked. I hated it, you know? And so, yeah, I don't think that's a coincidence that later on you do get into movement, but it's of the individual kind. It's not really a team sport. Mountain biking, is it? And, you know, to answer your question, no, I I think I did have a a certain amount of innate talent. Kind of how I got into the racing was uh, through snowboarding, actually. Uh, In San Francisco, uh, you would quite often have uh, people sharing a house up at Tahoe. You know, and I find these people through Craigslist. Somebody would lease a, ha- a big house and then get 12 people from the internet to share it. And mm-hmm. you know, I met a bunch of my friends when I first moved to California that way. And one of those guys, I just happened to bump into him on the trails in Marin. And uh, he was going to do a lap of uh, some trails called Tamarancho, which is not far from San Francisco. And he said, oh, yeah, you can sort of ride with me for the first lap. But the second lap, I'm really going to throw the hammer down. And so you probably won't be able to keep up. And I was able to keep up. It was all very, very easy. And, you know, when we finished the ride, he said, you know what? You're pretty fast. You should come with me to a bike race this weekend, which I did. And of course, I did well. And then you're like, oh, shit, now what? Like, what might be possible if this is what I can do, you know, having done no training with no coach and not really any deliberate effort whatsoever, what might be possible? So that was kind of my slippery journey into racing bikes. Wow. Well, so let's talk about this because I, this is the part that really interests me uh, about your story is because, you know, I I think what got me when Nick mentioned what you did was I was like, okay, this is a lot about sort of peak performance and, you know, stuff that overlaps with a lot of the stuff that Stephen Kotler and Jamie will do. Uh, What, especially at that age, right? Because typically when people become world-class in an athletic pursuit, um, they're they start when they're young. Like, I mean, it's like LeBron James holding a basketball at age 12. You kind of know that, okay, this guy is destined for greatness, but this happened quite later in your life. Mm. So one, what is it that enables somebody later in life to do something that physically demanding, um, Mm. especially at the level that you've done it? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think partly the answer is choosing the right sport, right? I don't think, you know, someone who takes up basketball in their mid-30s is ever going to turn pro, right? There's no way. Whereas you look at most endurance athletes, they tend to peak around that age. Wouldn't you agree? Like, I mean, you definitely get some world-class and even world-champion youngsters, but a lot of the pro peloton, it's like guys in their early 30s, you know, quite often. I mean, you see people still winning in their late 30s. So I, I think that's part of it. You know, I mean, I've, I wasn't sedentary my whole life. You know, I've been riding bikes my whole life. I just didn't realize that I was actually quite quick and that I would do well in racing. So it was really just the, the discovery part. And I think this actually, this is even really much more common uh, for women. Like, they don't mm. know, like they've never really had the opportunity. They've never been introduced to the sport. And so it's even more common to find women who go from never having ridden a bike to being world champion. Uh, Marianne yeah. Voss, I think is a good example of that. You know, it's just because they didn't, just never realized, just never found out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Kelly Slater apparently is the only athlete to have basically been dominant in his sport for four decades. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so what you know, when when you are able to do this, what actually goes into the training? You know, I mean, how much of it is mindset? How much of it is physical? Like what is involved in this? Mm. Yeah, that's another really good question. I think about this a lot. And, you know, I think I made some mistakes in the beginning in trying to separate out all the different component parts. Um, and not realizing that everything was all connected, you know, 
Um, so I hired a coach and the coach was actually very good. They created a program for me. And I'd say the first thing they did for me was actually get me to slow down. I used to ride everywhere as fast as I possibly could because I thought that's what would make me faster. It does sort of yeah. make sense when you think about it from a simplistic sense, but I completely undervalued recovery, which is where mm. the magic happens. So obviously that's problematic. So that, that was quite good. But still, you know, as I upped the volume, I did more and more volume on the bike to the point where I'm doing like 20 hours a week of cycling. And gradually the, the wheels came off the wagon. And I know now, like looking back, that the reason that happened was multifactorial, but diet was a big part of it. I just ate yeah. more of the food that I'd been eating my whole life and was probably making me sick, which was cereal for breakfast, sandwich for lunch, pasta for dinner, right? Just tons and tons of that. And then when I was on the bike, I would consume buckets of those maltodextrin gels. You know, I'd get back from a ride and I'd have like nine of these things all stuck together in my jersey pocket. And, uh, you know, that's what you did. You know, I asked the coach, oh, should I be taking these maltodextrin gel things? He's like, yeah, yeah, everyone does that. That's a good idea. Good, you know, you should go for it. And I ended up being like the dealer, you know, I'm a, a member of a cycling club and I'm the guy that gets the deal on the maltodextrin gels. And yeah. I think I did a lot of damage to my health that way. And in the end, I ended up at my primary care doctor because that's where you go when you're not feeling good, right? Like health and fitness, they're these two separate things. And if it's not fitness, then it must be, you know, there's a false dichotomy there, I think. So I go to the doctor and the doctor's not interested in my cycling performance at all. But he says, well, yeah, okay, you've got some gut symptoms. So go see the gastroenterologist. So you get palmed off to this specialist and the specialist says, well, it's nothing to do with your diet. Uh, this, is, this is just what happens. It's genetic or something like that. Something fixed, something that can't be altered. And they said that they had some steroid anti-inflammatory drugs. And then when those stopped working, they had surgery. Uh, and I mean, that doesn't sound like a path anyone wants to take, right? Um, but luckily, you know, around that time, I met the woman who is now my wife. And she'd recently been studying food allergies in the lab as part of her master's degree. And she said, you know, you should really try an elimination diet before you go for the steroid anti-inflammatory drugs and surgery, because it's a lot less invasive. And hey, what have you got to lose? So I did that. I went on to what people now call the paleo autoimmune diet. Although, I mean, it was called that then, but there were hardly any resources. So my wife had to do a lot of research to sort of put together a diet. And uh, yeah, she saved me. She fixed me up and she saved me. Um, so I never did take the steroid anti-inflammatory drugs and I never did do the surgery. And mm. I recovered my gut health, no more bloating, no more diarrhea. And I started sleeping. Like it's really hard to sleep well when your gut's all messed up. And yeah. I started enjoying biking again. Like I realized with hindsight that the joy had sort of gone out of it because it's just not fun to do shit. I mean, you know this from surfing, like try putting yeah. on a, a wetsuit, um, you know, when you're bloated and you feel like you might shit your pants at any minute. Like that's fun, <laughs> That is, is like the worst case scenario. You literally dread that possibility because you're just like, you're in the water. You're like, oh man, now I got to go take this damn thing off. And, yeah. you know, the, that is literally the thing we always all dread, yeah. <laughs> we get in the, especially because you surf first thing in the morning. Right. Yeah. And, and it ruined kiteboarding for me as well, because I mean, it's the same deal. You've got to put this wetsuit on the California Pacific water is very cold. So I'm wearing like a, I don't know, like a five, whatever it is, five, two or five, three wetsuit. And then you put this waist harness on, right? That's like really tight around your waist because the kite clips into it. And so that, I mean, that felt awful. You know, you know, this thing needs to be tight, but when you tighten it, it's yeah. like squeezing down on this basketball bloated belly. Like, that wasn't fun. And then on top of that, you know, I think my gut dysfunction was then causing some hormonal problems, including low testosterone, low libido, but also low thyroid. And thyroid makes cells do what they do. And people who are hypothyroid, meaning they have low thyroid function, 
they're quite often really cold and I always bloody freezing. And so, yeah, snowboarding, being in the freezing cold water, that was not fun at all. So some of these sports started to fall to the wayside just because of the hormonal changes I was experiencing from gut problems. Yeah. Well, so I think that this actually makes a, a perfect segue to talking about sort of what led you to to doing the work that you do today. But one of the things that I, I wonder about is how much of this was driven by your desire to compete at the level that you were competing? Because I think we've seen, you know, with like Lance Armstrong, what happens when mm. that competitive drive becomes so intense that you're willing to basically break the rules of a sport? I mean, we've seen it over and over again, and it leads to some pretty awful outcomes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. It was all about performance. The first time I went to see my primary care doctor, I had one eye on performance still, even though, you know, I had terrible insomnia, these horrible gut symptoms. I was still thinking, I bet this doctor guy, I bet if he can fix this stuff, it can improve my sports performance. You know, that's what I wasn't thinking. Oh, it would just make me a healthier, better human, more fun to be around. I was just, it was all about sports performance. And yeah, uh, yeah I, 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 see the, I see the folly of that now, right? Now I'm old and you know, 45. I'm not really racing at the highest level anymore. I still have a pro license, but you know, come on, I'm not doing 20, 30 hours a week of training anymore. So I'm never going to be that competitive. But yeah. yeah, it was that pursuit of performance that got me into trouble. What, what shifted? Was it the actual health consequences or mm. mindset? Like what changed that made you rethink that whole pursuit of performance? Because I mean, think about it, like everybody who comes mm. to self-improvement, whether it's through fitness, whether it's through, you know, seminars, whether it's through books, I think is looking for some semblance of an improvement in performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I'm one of those rare birds that can, as soon as I find out that something is not the best way or there is a better way, I can just yeah. drop it and change. And, and I know that is not normal. Like most people are not like that. I'm not the customer in many ways, but that's definitely one of them. Most people find behavior change hard. And, you know, so, you know, people have a, an emotional relationship with food, right? They don't want to give up their breakfast cereal because that's what I've always eaten since I was a kid. And it reminds me of being a kid. It reminds me of all this stuff. Like, whereas I'm just like, oh, really? What, the cereal might be causing my gut problems? It's gone. Like the next day it's gone. Yeah. And so I'm kind of unusual in that regard. Mm. But was there a moment that made you say that, okay, you know what, this is clearly going to lead to somewhere bad, uh, mm. just based on, on health? Like what made you change or, did, you know, let go of that competitive drive and put your health above your performance? Mm. Yeah, that's a really good question. Yeah, there was a kind of fuck it moment. I sort of skipped out this part because um, it's not easy to talk about. You know, so there was a girl that came before the woman I married and the reason that relationship ended was because of erectile dysfunction. I got kicked off somebody's stoop because I couldn't get it up. And I think that was the fuck it moment. You're like, ah, yeah, I guess I can't really keep doing this. You know, like the sports performance is important to me, but so is sex. And so is having uh, a relationship, you know? And so that was kind of the moment where I'm like, ah, you know, I have to like, compromise some performance here. And the interesting thing was, you know, when I slowed down and when I figured out the diet, when I figured out my insomnia, when I figured out how to manage stress and, you know, figured out social connectedness as well. I think I was suffering from loneliness, you know, having being a foreigner uh, in a foreign country and just racing was my entire existence. You know, when I wasn't racing, I was resting on the couch. I think I was pretty lonely. Uh, you know, when I figured all that stuff out and got super healthy, then the performance came. It was just uh, an emergent phenomena from health, you know. And it was only then that I got my pro license. And so, um, yeah, it kind of worked out being forced to slow down by the erectile dysfunction 
eventually led to increased performance. But I just I didn't see it that way in the beginning, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, so how does that take us to nourish, balance, thrive? I mean, I know, I think what got my attention was the fact that you are doing science-based work around all of this. And I mm. know for a fact, there are a lot of people who use a sample size of one and call it science uh, and, you know, sell it and package it and market it really well. But I think, you know, you really kind of, it struck my attention that Nick brought that up and he said you were doing some really innovative work around, you know, blood work related to performance. So like, how in the world did you get into this? Mm. Yeah. I mean, I just wondered, like after I'd been through this, after I'd recovered my gut health and I was sleeping and I'm feeling so much more energetic and my relationship is going well. I mean, you have to wonder how many other people have been through the same thing. And I got a lucky break uh, in that I had the opportunity to speak on Ben Greenfield's podcast. And I think I did that with, so one of my friends is a medical doctor. Her name is Jamie Kendallweed. And she was kind of disenfranchised with her work at the time. You know, she just finished medical school. She's got this $250,000 education, starts work on Monday morning. You've got 30 patients to see and you've got seven minutes with each of them. So imagine that the kind of the, you know, the guy that had just been kicked off that girl's stoop that's still eating cereal for breakfast. I show up at her clinic and she's got seven <laughs> minutes to fix me. I mean, what the fuck? Like she can't do anything in seven minutes, right? And the only tool she has is the prescription pad. And so, you know, she was seeing this over and over again. She was pretty disenfranchised. And, you know, we saw the opportunity to start a startup, went on Ben Greenfield's podcast. I told a story very similar to the one that you just heard. And a bunch of people came to me and said, hey, that's exactly what happened to me. Whatever you did, you know, tell me the diet that you ate. Tell me the supplements you took. Tell me the tests that you did. Um, Send it all to me. Here's my credit card number. I want the transformation that you had. And that was the genesis of MBT. Wow. Well, so let's talk about what happens. Like, how do you get to this, you know, place of, you know, feeling nourished, balanced and thriving in your life? Like, what are the sort of foundational aspects of this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I've already been through some of them. Um, yeah. You know, fairly recently, like within the last couple of years, I got lucky. One of the, in fact, this has been true. This is part of why I'm still here today is over the years, a lot of really smart people have come along and taken me under their wing and given me guidance. And many of those people are doctors of the, the medical variety. And then some have been PhDs. And many of them have been on my podcast. And I think one of the most useful has been a neurologist by the name of Josh Turknet. And he gave me a four quadrant model that allowed me to prioritize health interventions. And this, I think, is important because when I talk to clients, a lot of them are really confused about what's important and what's not. And they say things like, I've tried everything and nothing works. And what they mean is that they've tried a million things, some of which were really important, some of which weren't important at all, and not given them an honest try, and they haven't really seen much benefit. So this four-quadrant model, it allows me to prioritize uh, intervention. So quadrant one are the things that we think about first. And there are things like I've already mentioned, right? The ancestral diet, which means meat and vegetables, some fruit, and not much added fat, almost no processed food at all. And then, you know, sleep, circadian rhythm. Humans and our ancestors have been walking around under the same light, dark cycle for millions of years. Now we have electric lighting, right? And you can make it daytime at night. That was definitely part of my problem in the beginning. And then what else? Appropriate stress management. You know, some of the... The cognitive tools that are available today, like um, 
acceptance and commitment therapy is my favorite. Uh, just so useful for managing stress. Um, and then what else? And then you get into the, then you get into the, once you've got that, that foundational stuff, you've got the quadrant two things. Mm-hmm. And these are things that disrupt the physiology, disrupt the status quo in some beneficial way. And so there's, those are things like training on your bike and lifting weights and Wim Hof style breathing and fasting and hot, cold exposure and all this other stuff. But that really is sort of the icing on the cake. You know, you need this foundation in place before you can start putting the icing on the cake. And then you get into what we might call the quadrant three or the, the source code level stuff. Uh, and this is where things start getting sexy in terms of a business model. You know, like now, now I can start making money, right? It's like really hard to make yeah. money selling dietary interventions and sleep interventions. And it's really hard to make money even selling the quadrant two stuff like weightlifting programs or something like that. I mean, it's all coaching, right? It's all exchanging your time for money. But once you get into the source code level stuff, now you've got something that more, looks more like a scalable business model. Um, so this mm-hmm. is where all nutritional supplements uh, lie, right? So maybe I do a blood test and I find, let's just pick something arbitrary, low levels of vitamin D, 25-hydroxy vitamin D on a blood chemistry. And I mean, of course, the best way to improve that is to get outside into the sunshine, right? That would be the quadrant one intervention. But I could also sell you a supplement, right? And the, and the supplement, like I don't need to exchange any of my time uh, mm-hmm. to make money for the supplement. So um, that's a much better business model. Um, right. Unfortunately, MBT is not really a startup. You know, I think about that a lot now that in the beginning, I thought I was starting a startup. And what I mean by that is exponential growth. But what mm-hmm. we actually started was a business model that more closely resembles a barbershop, you know, where people come in and they get their <laughs> hair cut, right? And if you were to send me a thousand clients tomorrow, I would just crumble and die, right? Like, there's no way that we could see a thousand people at once. Yeah. And so, you know, that's, that's the, the kind of, we're more tending towards the barbershop model. And we, you can get nutritional supplements from us, but that's not really where we go first. And it's certainly not where we make our money. Uh, so that's mm. the quadrant three. And of course, there's lots of things like that, the zinc and magnesium and like, you know, all these things that could potentially be deficient and often are, you know, n- nutritional deficiencies are definitely real. And we find them all the time with uh, the testing that we do in our clinic, uh, mostly blood testing. But then you get into the quadrant four things, which is, you know, you're sort of tinkering in the source code, but then you're also trying to exploit the status quo, the physiology uh, a bit like weightlifting, you know, like, and, and this is kind of all pharmaceuticals, right? So, uh, you know, maybe statin drugs are a good example of that, where you're trying to lower cholesterol levels in the hope that somehow it reduces cardiovascular disease. And yeah, maybe, maybe you've got something there, but I don't think any cardiologist would argue that sleep is uh, less important than the statin, right? Like that seems self-evident. Um, and then the only time that pharmaceuticals really work really well is when the physiology is hopelessly broken. So in type 1 diabetes is a really good example, right? Your pancreas is completely broken. It's not making any insulin whatsoever. If you don't replace that insulin, you're going to die. And so you have to inject it. Like that's a really good use of pharmaceuticals, but pretty much everything else, right? (laughs) I don't think they work so good. And maybe that's part of the reason why, you know, we've gotten into so much trouble today in Western societies like the UK and the US is this over-reliance on the quadrant four as the first line intervention, right? Like that's what Jamie's doing when she sees people as a primary care doctor. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, I think, that, I think that, that that model, the algorithm for prioritizing health interventions has maybe been the most important thing I've learned since starting MBT. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. 
LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy-to-use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business, all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot com slash podcast. AWeber, simpler email marketing. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Wow. 
Well, I, I love this whole idea of a four quadrant model because I like mental models and I geek out them on them and it, it like helps me to put things in context. But um, let, let's take a look at this through a practical example, I think, because then, you know, I think it'll help people sort of frame. So I'll, I'll use, you know, out of my selfish desire to have you solve one of my problems, <laughs> I'll use myself as an example. Um, it's funny you mentioned the vitamin D deficiency because um, I remember a doctor told me that I was, you know, vitamin D deficient. And my sister was like, that's ridiculous. She's a doctor. She's like, you're a surfer you're in the sun all the time. And it turns mm. out people people with dark skin actually yep. tend to have vitamin D deficiencies, which I had no idea. Mm. Um, but let, let's use a simple example. A few weeks ago, I was home visiting my dad and he was like, look, man, he was like, you gained some weight. He was like, I think you need to lose your gut a little bit. Mm. Um, it's like, thanks, dad. It's nice to see you too. Like on the way home from the airport, this is a car back. No. He's dropping me off, you know? And so I was like, all right, fair enough. Like he's not wrong because of COVID, like our exercise habits have suffered a little bit. I hadn't been snowboarding as much this season. Uh, you know, we're kind of stuck inside doing nothing but work all the time. So let's just use that as an example. Mm. Uh, so if we're going to say, okay, you know, we're going to help Shreen trim his gut so he can fit into his nice custom fitted dress shirts again, where would mm -hmm. we be at? Yeah, that's a good, really good example, isn't it? Um, yeah, it's all diet, unfortunately. I interviewed Herman no. Ponser and he has a new book called Burn. And Herman talks about his constrained energy model. And the good news is it's all, you're in control. The bad news is it's all diet and you can't outrun a bad diet. Uh, the brain is yeah. very clever. It has ways of making adjustments to compensate when you move more. So for example, when I'm riding my bike 20 hours a week, I'm just going to turn down immunity, which is why athletes tend to get sick more, especially after races. It's going to turn down reproduction, uh, which is why you get erectile dysfunction, low testosterone. It makes perfect sense, right? Like if there's not much energy around, then yeah. because you're spending it all on locomotion, then you turn down these other optional things. So it's all diet when it comes to body composition. And yeah. then also, okay, so how do you, what do you do with your diet? Well, think about the, the rest of the animal kingdom. And we're all just animals, right? Like, do you know any other animal in the wild that gets fat? The only, the only animals that get fat are humans and the animals we domesticate. Well, why is that? And the answer is because we've engineered our food environment a little bit too good. You know, we're smart enough to engineer this super tasty food and then we're daft enough to eat it. You know, like that's the, mm -hmm. that's the simple answer. And now, again, this is something I've learned from my neurologist is the hypothalamus in the brain is very good at regulating lots of things, including food intake, unless you put it in an environment that makes it impossible for it to regulate food intake. And, you know, the old uh, Pringle sayings, uh, you know, once you pop, you can't stop. It's true. right? Yeah. Um, so what's the answer? Well, the answer is you put your brain back in an environment that allows it to regulate food intake by itself. Like I wouldn't recommend weighing food or counting calories or any of that stuff, but rather to stick to a minimally processed diet that consists of the one that I described earlier. It's basically meat and vegetables and a right. little bit of fruit. And you're trying to minimize processing and especially combinations of food, you know, like nobody really likes eating sugar on its own. Like if I was to just push the sugar bowl across the table, like how much <laughs> sugar do you think you could eat? Like just on its own, like not very much, right? It's disgusting. And the yeah. same is true of fat. You know, if I push across the, the bottle of olive oil, how much of that could you drink? Well, not very much. But when you put fat and carbohydrates together, you get cheesecake or ice cream, right? Those combinations are delicious. And, yeah. But you never see them in nature, right? You never see that. You see, might see a, a bush covered in delicious blueberries, or you might slaughter, you know, a bear. You know, that's actually my one it, uh, example that I can think of where, you know, an animal in the wild does get fat, but it does it deliberately. It's part of its normal physiology, a bear. You know, see a bear that's been feasting on blueberries 
or salmon over the summer, it does get a little bit fatter. So imagine you were to slaughter an animal like that. It's got you know hundreds of thousands of calories of fat on it. And you could, you know, eat those, but you never see the blueberries and the fat on the bear together, (laughs) not simultaneously. So I think the answer for most people, most of the time to improve their body composition is to keep food simple. Like don't, you know, if you go to a restaurant, well, they're not optimizing for your body composition. They're optimizing for your custom, right? They're just going to make the food super tasty and as cheap Mm. as possible. You know, so avoiding eating out, I think is maybe one way that people can improve their body composition. Yeah. Well, so I think the the question this raises for me is that we're all different, right? We all have different bodies. And I think this is one of the fatal flaws of a lot of sort of information that comes down from the world of diets, from self-improvement, all of it, right? Is that we try to offer a one-size-fits-all solution. So I can tell you as an Indian person, not eating carbs is pretty goddamn challenging, you know, considering the entire diet is carbs. You grew up in the UK, so you know this. Right. Like, what do Indians eat? It's like chicken tikka masalas and naans, and it's delicious. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, how do we you know, stop this? Like, I remember I tried to do a, a gluten-free diet when I was living at my parents' house, and my mom got gluten-free flour to make these rotis, and she, I was like, these are horrible. She's like, what uh-huh. did you expect? <laughs> you know? um, and so, you know, I, I wonder, how do you account for the fact that we all have different body types, we all have different physiology? Because I think too often um, you see things, you know, so for example, Bulletproof, I think is a perfect example of this. I drink Bulletproof coffee and I'm kind of like, okay, are there any benefits to this or am I just really into the ritual at this point? Mm-hmm. Uh, like it's become habitual to the point where I don't question it, but you know, I don't know that it's like, is there really any evidence that it's actually good for me? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that it may be, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounded like you poo-pooed the N equals one study. Whereas I might think that's the best type of study in a way. I mean, I wouldn't like to say there's no value in some of the other experimental designs like the randomized control trial. But typically those are good for testing out an intervention that's static, meaning it doesn't change. Mm -hmm. And there are no confounders, right? Like that's the only variable that you're trying to test. And uh, it's really good for pills. It's really good for the quadrant four things, right? Whereas for the quadrant one interventions that I know to be the big rocks that make the biggest difference in health and performance, those are really hard to assess using a randomized control trial because there's so many confounders. Think about one crappy night of sleep. That's going to affect your food choices the next day. And you may end up drinking more coffee which in turn is going to affect your sleep. And now we've got cycles, you know, it's like impossible to tease it apart with a randomized control trial, although it's not stopped people from trying. Whereas I think that N equals one, or sometimes called a population of one study, or sometimes yeah. called an ideographic study, is, is perfect. I mean, you're, you're telling me that, you know, you, your diet only consists of carbohydrates. Well, go ahead and do it. Um, get in a DEXA scan, see how you do. And then, and then do something else, like try a very high fat ketogenic diet with tons of protein and maybe some vegetables, but the bulk of your calories are coming from fat and protein and then get back in the DEXA scanner and, and mm. tell me which one worked best, right? And, yeah. you know, if the, if, the, mean, if, the, if the high carb diet is the best for your body composition, you've got no argument from me, you know, I've got no horse in this race, <laughs> right? It's up yeah. to you to figure this out. Yeah. No, I mean, fortunately, I live with two roommates who are not Indian, and they typically, you know, we stick to a pretty healthy diet um, when I'm here. Uh, but yeah, I guess you, that's the thing. I appreciate the fact that you actually said, you know, look at what it does for you, because I think there's this tendency to for people to look at something that works for a lot of people and be like, yes, that's going to work for me, yeah, even if it's not. 
Yeah. And I think so it's difficult because I think there's value in both. You know, I already told you that so hard. Uh, so Herman Ponzer did some work with the Hadza. He went and he administrated doubly labeled water in these hunter gatherers. And that was one of the ways that he figured out that total energy expenditure is constrained and that you can't outrun a bad diet. You see, well, they thought that the Hadza, because they're constantly moving around, they walk, you know, like a marathon, no, not quite a marathon, but they're walking at least 10 miles every day. And they're always on their feet. They don't own furniture, you know, like they don't even really sit down like we do. So even when they're resting, their muscles are not really completely relaxed like ours are when we sit in an easy chair. And so they assumed that these people were burning, you know, probably multiples of what the average Westerner, but in the end, they found they weren't. They were burning about exactly the same amount of energy because um, they've just turned down reproduction and other things. So, you know, there's definitely by looking to the scientific literature and controlled experiments, there's definitely something we can learn about people in general. But the fine details, you got to figure that out for yourself, right? Yeah, for sure. Well, we've talked about diet. Let's talk uh, about exercise because not everybody listening to this is a professional mountain biker or lives you know, somewhere where they can do the things that you and I do, like surf or snowboard. So like mm. for the average person, uh, you know, what is normal and healthy as opposed to sort of the th- kinds of things that we do? Like what's realistic? Mm. You know, I think about this a lot too. That's one of the most common complaints I hear from our clients is, you know, Chris, I hear you talking about all this pro mountain biker stuff. And then you have all these strength and conditioning experts on. And it's all really high performance. And I come to the front page of your website and I read all this stuff about athletes. And I think, no, that's not really me, you know. Uh, my response to that is we're all athletes. You're just not an athlete yet. You know, when I say athlete, I don't mean, you know, track and field events. And I don't mean very high performance. I think of an athlete is someone who's just competent in moving their body and that we're all athletes. I think that humans have evolved as upright bipedal organisms that are really good at pursuing their food, whether it be gathering or persistence hunting an antelope. Like we're all athletes. It's just whether or not you have a solid athlete identity, you know, and that's true of you of a surfer. I mean, you are a surfer, the identity, because you go out there and you paddle out every day. And that act of paddling creates the identity of surfer, you know, like there's a a virtuous cycle there. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you're currently completely sedentary and you're wondering, well, how do I move more? The answer is, I mean, you just take one tiny step, like literally one tiny step. Can you go for a two minute walk today? Great. Go for a two minute walk tomorrow, can you do three minutes? Um, great. Um, the next day, can you do four minutes? Like, so by taking these actions in the early days, um, you know, you, you overcome that chicken and egg problem. Then you start to form this identity. You know, before you know it, you're walking for 15 minutes or you're walking for an hour. And then people that you know who are totally sedentary are saying, what did you do? Like you used to be completely sedentary like me and now you walk for an hour a day. What happened? And the answer is you just made very small and incremental changes over time and thus developed uh, an athlete identity uh, over time. Yeah. Well, I appreciate the fact that you brought up incremental changes because I think that we tend to overvalue drastic change and, you know, undervalue yeah. incremental change because you don't get to make some grand announcement about incremental change on Facebook. Whereas drastic yeah, change, yeah. you know, you can be like, yeah, I quit my job. Everybody gets you tons of likes. And, you know, whereas it's like, I went out for a walk and people are like, why the hell yeah, did you right. put this on Facebook? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think you sort of speak is the problem. Facebook, right. Is the, is the problem 
your need to be validated by some external entity, you know, and is comparison the thief of joy in this instance? You know, I, get, I started fairly recently, actually, a few years ago, enjoying my cycling so much more when I stopped using Strava. Like I think every cyclist listening to this will know the website Strava. It's basically Facebook for cyclists. And, yeah. you know, you'd finish your ride and you upload your GPS file to this website and and then you got to compare what you did that day with all of your friends. And of course, there's always one friend that went on a four hour ride that day where you had to work. And, you know, you, you, know, you compare your ride to them and you think, oh my God, they're going to be so much faster come race day. I don't even know why I bother. And you've just like destroyed all of the great feeling that originated from the ride. Like it's just such a bad idea. And I know that people love to compare. Like you can't, it's really hard to find meaning in anything that you do unless you have something by which to compare. But you really have to be careful that comparison can be the thief of joy. Yeah. Well, I, I think that, that this is actually a really good place for us to to kind of, you know, bring this conversation full circle because we talked about sort of competitive competition and drive and ambition. Mm. So I, I noticed when people wear wearables, so I was using a Whoop for uh, a while, right? And my roommate, Matt, uses an Aura Ring and the sleep score at, at a certain point, I realized I was like, is this more about optimizing your sleep score, getting a good enough night's sleep. So I started doing some research and I remember reading this New York Times article where this guy said that he was so anxious about getting good marks on his sleep score and his wearable that it actually made his sleep worse. <laughs> uh, and I, I noticed this snowboarding too. When I would track my speed, uh, I would you know check the app on the way back up on the lift and I'd be like, damn, I thought I was going so much faster than that. Mm. And it would immediately kick me out of whatever flow or zone I was in. And mm -hmm. I, I, after that, I realized I was like, I'm not here to track my speed. I'm not a fucking pro snowboarder. I'm here to mm -hmm. just enjoy myself. So I stopped doing it. Um, so when you think about sort of, you know, the sort of world of biohacking and wearables, like how do you have some semblance of a healthy relationship with it without taking it too far? Because my sister being a doctor says, yeah, it's great that you can have access to all this information. She's like, but it's also the kind of thing that turns people into hypochondriacs. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I can totally relate to that. You know, the neurologist I mentioned earlier, he sees these people in the in his office, right? Like coming in, asking them questions about the aura rig data. Um, I mean, one of the things you should know about, I mean, the last time I checked, the, the, the sleep architecture detection on the aura ring was pretty rubbish, like not much better than chance. It's like very good at measuring sleep duration, but the stages yeah. of sleep stuff, like we have so many clients saying, oh, why am I not getting more deep sleep? And the answer is probably because the algorithm isn't very good at detecting your deep sleep, you know? Yeah. But, you know, I work with a performance psychologist. His name is Simon Marshall. He's been another one of those amazing people that took me under his wing over the years. And as he points out constantly to me that self-monitoring is the cornerstone of behavior change. You know, if you're, like, if you're not paying attention to yourself, you're probably not going to change, you know, even if you want to. And so it's really difficult to try and reconcile the, these two things. Like, what do you do? Uh, I, I mean, I'm not sure I always know the answer, but uh, I mean, you, you, you have to look, but at some point you have to say, well, this is not helping anymore and, and just ignore that data, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that's, that's why I finally ditched it. I was like, you know what? I'm more stressed out about improving the results of my wearable than I am actually getting a good night's yeah. sleep. So I finally realized was, this is just causing me anxiety, not actually helping. You know, something else I've found to be really helpful is not to monitor the behavior itself but the behaviors that lead to the thing that you want, if that makes sense. So if you care mm -hmm. about getting more and better quality sleep, then monitor the behaviors that lead to that more and better quality sleep. It's no good looking at your aura data the next day and say, fuck me, another shitty night of sleep today is going to really suck. But like, that's not helpful, right? Whereas 
setting an alarm that reminds you to get into your wind down routine because bedtime is coming. Like that's like, and monitor that, like monitor those behaviors. Like that is generally more helpful, I think, than monitoring the thing itself. Mm, wow. Wow. Um, well, this has been really, really fascinating. I love conversations like this because you've just given us so much to chew on and think about along with some really practical advice. So I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Mm. Yeah, I think for us, what makes us unmistakable is when I say us, I mean, everyone at MBT, I think of myself as part of a team. And I think it's our holistic approach to health. You know, I think we've gone down a, a wrong path in separating out health and fitness. I think that fitness is, is an emergent phenomena from health. And I think that it doesn't make sense to have one coach that looks at your training plan and then another one that looks at your hormone levels in blood, right? I, I, don't, I don't get, it doesn't make any sense to separate out those things. I don't think it makes any sense to separate out our, mental and physical health. You know, I'm seeing that now as a sort of thing in Silicon Valley is, you know, everybody's into their physical health. You go to the gym. Well, why don't you go to the emotional gym? What about your emotional fitness? As if it's somehow some separate thing, you know, but you can't like those, those things are hopelessly entangled. It's a dualism, like a yin yang, you know, where your physical health gives rise to your emotional health and your emotional health gives rise to physical health. Like you can't separate them. Right. And so when I think what makes MBT unmistakable is it is that a holistic? I mean, I know it sounds kind of woo when you say holistic, but it really is. It's like a holistic approach to health. Hmm. Amazing. Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights and wisdom with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work, and uh, everything that you're up to? Oh, that would be over at nourishbalancethrive.com. I host a podcast where every week I interview an expert. I interviewed Nick actually recently. He was super good talking about the uh, the dating scene as it's changed since COVID. You know, like these dating apps have gotten uh, so many and so complicated and the world has changed so much in the past few years. I think that Nick did a really good job in talking about uh, dating and advice for men specifically. Uh, so yeah. each week I interview a, an expert like Nick and uh, maybe that's the, the best place for people to go and, and find me and learn more about what I do and how we create health and fitness to make that same separation again. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy-to-use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business, all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot com slash podcast. Aweber, simpler email marketing. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? 
We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.